What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. New rule, it's one thing to be a country that... <laughs> one thing to be a country that refuses to pay its bills. It's another thing to dress like one. Just because you haven't seen your genitals in 20 years... <laughs> doesn't mean we want to see them. When did America's new business casual become a pair of sandals and a sock on your dick? Maybe no one's bothered to bring this to your attention, people of America. So let me say it plainly here and now. When you leave your house, we can see you. (laughs) Now... Good morning. It is Sunday. Thank God it's Sunday, June the 4th, and this is The True Conservative. Welcome to all the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers out there. I'm Ron, your host, and the only true conservative in the United States today. So today, after the serenity prayer and the star-spangled banner, we will have no free lunch, the rape of the mind, and Bishop Barron. All that and more when I get back. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Thank you, thank you. And now, 
There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths by David Bonson. Our case is for the moderate virtues, encouraged by market pressures, but finally drawn from deeper wells, from the wisdom of tradition, the love of the family, and the divine and mistress tug of love beyond love, all of which must in turn be supported, encouraged, and strengthened. This is perhaps the most daunting challenge confronting the friends of capitalism today. Our purpose is to protect and strengthen our way of life, to stand up for a social and economic system that has lifted billions out of poverty and vastly improved our world in countless ways, and to avert a careless slide towards social democratic melancholy and decline. Ours is an argument for individual freedom amid moral order and for prosperity sustained by sympathy and discipline. It is an odd modern hybrid, a conservative case for the liberal society. As such, it is an integral piece of the case for America, unquote. Yuval Levine. The deeper wells of which he speaks are not luxuries. They are necessities for a liberal society. The secular enlightenment failed to understand that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. Likewise, secular market economists fail to appreciate that the great objectives of a market economy are not sustainable without being married to what is the beginning of freedom, the transcendent truths that give us the basis for love. And that was There's No Free Lunch by David Bonson. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. Who is the true conservative? He knows that the government has no rights. He is religious. He is patriotic and uses common sense. He makes judgments, refuses to speculate, speaks clearly and definitively, and is not afraid to say no. He's open-minded, asking why rather than why not. He is consistent credible, and influential, not ashamed of his existence, unafraid to learn or correct his mistakes. He is a normal American. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. What are the true conservative suggested political priorities? Number one, the abolition of abortion throughout the land. Number two, make nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons obsolete. Number three, immediate decertification of all public employee unions. Four, the immediate assignment of criminal and civil liabilities to all government regulators. Number five, the immediate repeal of the so-called Patriot Act. Number six, the immediate repeal of all emergency dictator laws. Number seven, the reinstatement of writs of outlawry Eight, government-sponsored recalls, ballot initiatives, and referendums. Nine, a flexible minimum wage. Ten, means-tested health care. Eleven, the immediate and permanent prohibition of investment banking by any office holder. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. What are the true conservative cultural priorities? Bring back hierarchy. Bring back the admiration of intelligence, morality, and beauty. Bring back 
single-income households, integration, parenting, the primacy of existence, certainty of knowledge, and universal rights and wrongs. Bring back principled behavior, masculinity and femininity. Bring back Adam 12, John F. Kennedy, the gold standard, pre-HMO medical care, and nonprofit news. Bring back civil service, the term stupid question, arguments and fights, the cultural influence of the church and the Boy Scouts. Bring back the influence of social organizations such as the Lions Club and the Rotary Club. Bring back bowling. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. Who is the liberal? He is the man that seeks consensus. He is subjective, petty, and small, taking everything in life personally. He's outrageous, boring, and rude. He pretends to be a leader and a change agent. He pretends that he's your friend. He is sly, cunning, and deceptive. He dresses, acts, and speaks like a slob. He's informal and terminally unique. He's childish and pretends that he knows nothing. He has no conscience and pretends that might makes right and that the ends justify the means. He is impulsive and rationalizes his behavior. He is deterministic, blaming others for his mistakes. He is skeptical, demanding that others solve his problems. His unreasonableness and irresponsibility make him a bad role model, bad father, brother, family member, friend, and a bad person, period. So if you think that you can be friends with a socialist, think again. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, The Rape of the Mind. Chapter 12, Technology Invades Our Minds. It is rather difficult to describe the onslaught on our minds made by the intrusion of technical thinking. This is so because technology has such contrasting influences. The influence can be a blessing, making us more independent of threatening forces of nature, but at the same time, the tool and the machine can dominate us. This inner antimony of technization we must master will we not otherwise be dragged down into the maelstrom of ever-increasing technical development to final atomic catastrophe. The particular or peculiar paradox of technology lies in this. Gradually, the well-being of the machine, autocar, factory, assumes greater importance and value than the well-being of man and mankind. The growth of technology, of the manifold mechanical instruments in the services of our fantasies, has thrown mankind back to an infantile dream of unlimited power. There he sits, the little man, in his room with various gadgets around him, just pushing a button changes the world for him. What might and what still further power he envisions, yet what mental danger. The growth of technology may confuse man's struggle for mental maturity. The practical application of science and tools originally were meant to give man more security against outside physical forces. It safeguarded his inner world. It freed time and energy for meditation, concentration, play, and creative thinking. Gradually, the very tools man made took possession of him and pushed him back into serfdom instead of toward liberation. 
Man became drunk with technical skill. He became a technological addict. Technology calls forth from people unknown to themselves an infantile, servile attitude. We've nearly all become slaves of our cars. Technical security paradoxically may increase cowardice. There's almost no challenge anymore to face the forces of nature outside us and the forces of instinct within us. Because the very technical world has become for us that magical challenge which nature originally afforded. It is the very subservience to technology that constitutes an attack on thinking. The child that is confronted from early youth with all modern devices and gadgets of technology, the radio, the motor, the television set, the film, is unwittingly conditioned to millions of associations, sounds, pictures, movements, in which he takes no part. He has no need to think about them. They are too directly connected with his senses. Modern technology teaches man to take for granted the world he is looking at. He takes no time to retreat and reflect. Technology lures him on, dropping him into its wheels and movements. No rest, no meditation, no reflection, no conversation. The senses are continually overloaded with stimuli. The child doesn't learn to question his world anymore. The screen offers him answers ready-made. Even his books offer him no human encounter. Nobody reads to him. The screen people tell him their story in their way. Technical knowledge forced upon him in this way makes no demand that he think about what he sees and hears. Conversation is becoming a lost art. The machine age rushes on, leaving no time for quiet reading and encounter with the creative arts. We do see a countercurrent, however, in the do-it-yourself movement. Here we probably see a resurgence of the creative spirit and a challenge to the engineer who creates the robot. In an over-technical world, body and mind no longer exist. Life becomes only a part of a greater technical and chemical thought process. Mathematical equations intrude into human relations. We learn, for example, through the doctrine of guilt by association, the simple equation that the enemies of our enemies have to be our friends, and that the friends of our enemies have to be our enemies, as if only simple addition of positive and negative signs exist by which to evaluate human beings. And that was... The Rape of the Mind by Juiced Mirlo, M.D. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, Bishop Robert Barron. Peace be with you. Friends, we come today to Trinity Sunday. I know, I know, the preacher's nightmare but as you probably know from previous sermons of mine, I, I don't agree with that at all. I think every Sunday is Trinity Sunday. The Trinity names what's most fundamental and basic in our whole theology and spirituality. So we need and we, sh- we should rejoice in, in talking about the Trinity. Can I give you appropriately three um, kind of scriptural grounds or justifications for talking about God as a Trinity of persons? First of all, Jesus himself. So Jesus speaks of a father who sent him. And you say, okay, fair enough. I mean, wouldn't Abraham or Jacob or Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, Ezekiel, wouldn't any of them have spoken of God as their father who sent them on a mission? You know, so far, so ordinary. But here's where it gets really complicated. Even though he's, other than this father who sent him on a mission, he speaks and acts in the very person of the God of Israel. 
You've heard it said in the Torah, but I say, well, who can claim that kind of authority except God himself? My son, your sins are forgiven. Well, who can forgive sins but God alone? Showing his mastery even over the elements of nature, walking on the water and calming the storm. Unless you love me more than your mother and father, more than your very self, you're not worthy of me. Well, no prophet would ever say that. That would be the height of arrogance. But only the supreme good in person could say that. So that was their dilemma was, okay, he's sent by the father, but yet he seems to be himself the God of Israel. Now, if you think that's kind of abstract, um, every single Sunday. We state this truth when with the Council of Nicaea, we say that he's God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And remember, consubstantial with the father. That's just the English version of homoousios. That was the Greek one in being consubstantial. Well, that was the dilemma that they faced. Like, okay, Jesus is somehow other than the father, but yet consubstantial with the father. That idea was bequeathed to the great tradition. And then this. The Father and I, Jesus says in the Gospel of John the night before he dies, the Father and I will send to you an advocate. We will send to you a Holy Spirit, listen now, who will lead you into all truth, who will interpret for you the meaning of Jesus and lead you into all truth. What human figure or merely created power could lead us into all truth? The Holy Spirit, in other words, is also one in being with the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit shares divinity with the Father and the Son. And then didn't they experience this at Pentecost when the power of the Holy Spirit came in a divinizing way to them? So, these three biblical sources, I think, give rise to this idea. Here's another one, in some ways summing it up. When we find in the first letter of John, this very peculiar claim that God is love. I've said to you many times before, I think, that every religion, every philosophy of religion would talk about the love that God has, that love is an attribute of God, that God loves some or he loves, he loves as, a, as a typical activity or whatever. But there is no religion or philosophy that makes the truly strange claim that God is love except Christianity. Well, if that's the case, then God in his own most nature must be a play of lover, of beloved, and of shared love. See, if God has love, which any religion would claim, I wouldn't have to say that. I'd just say the one God has this activity that he loves. But the Christian claim is so much more radical. Love is what God is. Inescapably, always, from all eternity. It's not something he just does. It's what he is. Therefore, there has to be. You can't have love without a lover and a beloved. You can't have love without the love that the lover and beloved share. And therefore, we speak of the father, the lover, the son, the beloved, and the spirit 
the love that they share. See, all of this, and I've just been staying within the Bible here. These are all biblical references. They're bequeathed to the tradition. And some of the smartest people in the early century of the church, they tried to make sense of this. That the one God of Israel, and, and no Christian ever denies that. Remember the Shema prayer from the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is Lord alone. The oneness of God, the unity of God is affirmed up and down the biblical tradition. Nobody wants to deny that. But what was bequeathed to them was this, this puzzle that the one God nevertheless subsists as three persons, as a play of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of lover, beloved, and shared love, of the consubstantial Father and Son who will send a spirit consubstantial with them. That's where the doctrine of the Trinity, everybody, comes from. Now, One of the very best places to look, if you're still trying to to get a model for understanding all this, is the great St. Augustine. Augustine, you know, with Aquinas, the greatest theologian in the history of the church. And I think his perhaps signal accomplishment intellectually was this analogy he gave us for the Trinity. He spoke about mind, self-knowledge, and self-love. But I want to put this in more perhaps contemporary language by giving an analogy that we're more at home with. Anybody who's ever been through um, counseling or or therapy or spiritual direction or even even a, a profound conversation with a friend when you're trying to figure something out in your life, what do you do? Well, see, with the help of a therapist or a spiritual director, you might pose your own life as an an object as an issue, as something to be examined. And you say, okay, what was I doing? What was I thinking when I did X, Y, and Z? Or, you know, when I was a kid here, what, what was going on in me? Now, you see what's happening, maybe with the help of your, of your spiritual director, is you are looking at you. <laughs> you are examining as an object yourself. Now, unless you've, you've, gone, you've lost your mind, no one in that process will think, oh, well, I've split into two things. <laughs> no one's going to say, hey, I've become two different persons. No, no, you're, you are both subject and object. The one person, the one you, is both subject and object. Now, take it one more step, because Augustine calls this third move self-love is having gone through that process where, okay, you're examining yourself and you come to a deeper understanding. You come to a deeper appreciation of what you were doing or what pressures you were under or what friendships you had or didn't have. And in that process, you come thereby to a greater self-acceptance or a greater love of yourself. There's a knower, there's a known, and now there's a love that obtains between the knower and the known. And all this is going on in this ordinary process of maybe conversing with a counselor or the spiritual director. You haven't become three things. You haven't split into three. But yet there is a kind of play 
a Trinitarian play within you. Ah, that's what Augustine saw. Go back to his language. Mind, self-knowledge, self-love. That obtains in every one of us. The Bible says we were made in the image and likeness of God. And Augustine said, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. When you go deep down into our own interiority, you find indeed this remarkable imago Dei, this remarkable image of God in this Trinitarian play that exists even within our own psyches. Not bad. The Father, that's the great mind. The Son, there is the great self-knowledge. The Spirit, the love shared between the Father and the Son. You know, following up on this, I might have said this to you before, uh, but Fulton Sheen, one of my great heroes, he, he adapted Augustine's analogy. He said, from all eternity, the Father looks at the Son, his, his own image. The Son, who's consubstantial with the Father, he has everything the Father has. He's the perfect image of the Father. He looks back and, and he, he sees sheer perfection. And the two of them looking at each other, they, they sigh their love for each other. That's the Spiritus Sanctus, the Holy Breath. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, if you're with me so far, you might say, all right, all right. I guess it's all kind of interesting, <laughs> you know, biblical and theological and, yeah, these analogies. Okay, I kind of get it. But at the end of the day, so what? Here's the so what. God so loved the world. Now, when, I, when I'm quoting now from the Gospel of John, when he says God here, he means God the Father. God so loved the world, watch, that he sent his only son into the world that all who believe in him might have life in his name. Now, he sends the son where? Down into our ordinary humanity. Though he was in the form of God, this is Paul now, Jesus did not deem equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself and took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. Now, further, He obediently accepted even death, death on a cross. The father sends his beloved son all the way down. Why? To get us who had wandered far from him. That's what sin means. It means wandering away from God. So the father sent the son all the way to the limits of God forsakenness. So that he might, watch now, gather all of us back in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the love that connects the Father and the Son. Even when the Son is all the way down. The Son's gone all the way into death itself. But he's still connected by the love of the Holy Spirit. And in that love, the Father calls the Son back in the resurrection and ascension. Bringing in principle all of us sinners with him. Now do you see how all this abstract talk about the Trinity. Father, Son, Spirit, consubstantiality, uh, all that business. Becomes very viscerally real. It's because God is a Trinitarian play of persons. 
we can be saved. Not just outside of God begging for mercy, but now through God's grace, inside the dynamics of God's life. Gathered by the Son into the power of the Holy Spirit. There's the whole Christian life, everybody. That's the whole spiritual life. Let me close with this. Think about this every single time you make this gesture. Do you see what you're saying? God so loved the world that he sent his only son all the way down that we might be gathered into the Holy Spirit, the love that connects them. That's the Trinity. That's what we celebrate on Trinity Sunday. And God bless you. And that was Bishop Robert Barron. Back in a minute. Lord Rush Limbaugh's on by the Rush Hawkins singers is exactly what's called for. Thank you, thank you. I'm Ron, your host, and the only true conservative in the United States today, bidding adios to all of the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers out there. And until next time, be honest, be smart, be beautiful, and remember that the left has no authority, no power, and they can't win. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.